listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. All right, Northside, sing with me. You ready? Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Let's pause there for a moment. Do you really believe that? All is calm. All is bright. Is there ever a part of you when you're singing that song that kind of pauses for just a moment in your mind and thinks, you know, is that really true? I mean, the song speaks about Jesus as Savior and redeeming grace and holy and light. And all of that is so true. It's very true. But, but this phrase sometimes in my mind, it, it, it does make me pause in my mind just a little bit to, to say all is calm, all is bright. Sleep in heavenly peace. Is that the way Christmas is to you? Now, I'm not trying to be the Grinch here, okay? I'm not trying to be the Grinch. I'm not trying to ruin your Christmas song. And, and in fact, I have to admit, I have to admit right now, our world, because God created it and then sin broke it, our world demonstrates both beauty and brokenness. Good and evil are both represented. So there are moments, there are moments because of beauty and what God has created where it does feel like all is calm, all is bright. There's moments like that. For me, it was Father's Day of this year in June. Catherine cooked a a big meal for Father's Day. We were there at her house, her and her husband's house. And then we sat on the couch and there I was sitting on the couch and one girl fell asleep on the right shoulder. Another one of my girls fell asleep on the left shoulder. And there we sat. And you know what? All was calm and all was bright. And I think there was even some sleeping in heavenly peace going on. So there were some moments like that. And you have moments like that too. In fact, I think Mary and Joseph had moments with Jesus just like this. That had they had an iPhone, they could have captured it. And someone could have taken a picture. And they would have shown it to us and we would have said, oh. But while there's moments of that, maybe it's the word all, that all is calm, all is bright, when in your world, oftentimes, it just doesn't feel that way. In fact, we tend to romanticize Christmas. We put lacquer on it to make it look a little better. We, we sprinkle glitter on it just to make it sparkle a little bit more. And, and so we tend to romanticize it in such a way that it doesn't always match reality. I think many of our Christmas cards could probably better be described as Christmas cards. Christmas cards. You know, because our season greeting cards look like this. It, it shows a, a snow-powdered row and snow on the fence rail. And look, there are moments like that. You know, that you, some of you could have taken this picture right there out in the country, and we have moments where it's like that. But we live in Midwest Missouri. I mean, we live in the rest of our country where normally it's our lives are threatened by ice, you know, on the roads. There's no other way it is. Or followed up an hour later, we're hunkering down from a snow tornado. That's kind of the way life really goes for us here in the Midwest. So there's moments of that, but usually our lives are usually more at risk than that. 
I think we see Christmas cards happen whenever we, we picture a sleigh ride through a winter wonderland. You know what? If your sleigh ride looked like that on a sunny day and snow on the ground and you look all cozy, you know, good for you. I'm happy. Um, but, you know, the reality is for a lot of us, we're just, we're freezing and we're one spooked horse away from near-death experiences. This is more my experiences. When my sister-in-law wanted to go horseback riding for a birthday and we were at the Cassville Stables and they're getting the horses lined up and all of a sudden one shoots out of the barn with a saddle dragging behind it and they're like, uh, that's yours. Uh, that's normally and the true story, how mine goes. We show Christmas pictures of, of these families and their cute PJs. These little onesies, you know, it's like a big thing. And, and everybody gets them usually before Christmas Day. Typically Christmas Eve, sometimes before. So they can wear their Christmas PJs together. It looks, does, don't they look so cozy there, all of them together, snuggling? When I try to snuggle with my wife, I look like this because of static electricity. <laughs> it is painful. I go over for a cuddle and bam! You know, you're just, that's normally my experience with Christmas PJs. Don't like them. Not a fan. It's not a calm experience. It's a bright experience, but not a calm one. Our Christmas cards, we picture our toddler enjoying Christmas on the left, but really it's the one on the right. I mean, that's the way our pictures turn out. And our Christmas cards picture a manger scene like this. And you look at this scene and it's amazing. I mean, every animal is at attention. Every animal is focused on the Christ child. And not only that, but we have Mary and Joseph with their halos signifying holiness in this holy night. The angels and the star and sheep and shepherds all in adoration. And it looks like this beautiful and calm, peaceful, starry night. That's how we picture it. But Christmas really looked more like this. I heard this story about a family. They had a tradition on Christmas. The parents would hide all the figurines throughout the house and the kids would go on a scavenger hunt. And they'd have to find all the, the pieces of the nativity. And they would bring them to the nativity and set the pieces up. So it was a fun game they would do on Christmas Day. And so... They hide them and they tell the kids, go. And the kids go running throughout the house. And so they're running everywhere. And they're looking for Mary and Joseph and hay and a manger and swaddling clothes and some sheep and some shepherds. And they're looking for a stable. They're looking for all the pieces around the house. And this three-year-old was just kind of, would follow them into a room and boop, they dart out with something. And three-year-old follow around. So three-year-old notices everybody's grabbing things and then putting it and setting them around this manger scene. Of course, the three-year-old's not getting to participate because not fast enough, doesn't even know where to go or what's going on. And so finally, the three-year-old just goes over to the play box, pulls out a dragon, brings it over, and sets it in the nativity. And the father laughed. He said, there wasn't a dragon. And before he could finish his word, he realized there was a dragon in the nativity story. In fact, there was an evil, mean dragon in the story. It's not mentioned. He's not mentioned in any of the Gospels, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Matthew and Luke spend the most time on the birth narrative. They don't mention it. But the last book of our Bible, the book of Revelation, written by John, who also wrote a Gospel, he talks about it. 
He talks about the moment Jesus was born from a heavenly perspective. One that we wouldn't have seen with our own eyes if you were on earth at the moment. And his perspective reveals not all was calm or peaceful or silent or bright. If you, have a, if you have a device, I want you to open up to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And as you do, there's three main characters in the story. We have the woman. We have the child. And we have the dragon. Three main characters that kind of come out. There's more than that, but these are three. Woman, child, dragon. The woman in the story, according to most commentators, is symbolic of the community of God. The community of God, starting with Israel, who would give us the Messiah. Now, obviously, Mary is part of that community. So the woman in this story, because this is Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature, which means it uses signs and symbols and numbers, and they all carry weight and mean something. It's not literature we're accustomed to reading in our culture, so it's foreign to us. Just like a dragon in the manger scene would be foreign to us. It's, it's not something we're accustomed to, but the Jewish mindset would have been more aware of what was happening. And so we have this woman who is going to give us the Messiah. Later in the text, it's going to speak of her offspring as those who keep God's commands and, and that they give their testimony about Jesus. In other words, the, the offspring are the other, the community of God, the, the believers, which would include you. Revelation 12 begins by saying that this woman is pregnant with a child. So we have a child in the story. This is obviously Jesus Christ because Revelation 12.5 tells us that he will rule the nations with an iron scepter or an iron rod. It's, it's a phrase that is used in Psalm 2 to talk about the Messiah and how he would come. It's a prophecy. The kind of rod that the text is talking about is a shepherd's rod. And it's also made out of iron, which signifies it's very strong. And Jesus spoke about how he was the good shepherd, but he's also very powerful and an almighty shepherd. This child in Revelation 12 is Jesus. So we have a woman and we have this child, Jesus. And then we have in Revelation 12, this dragon. Any guesses as to who the dragon is? Well, verse 9 tells us the dragon is the devil. And so in this scripture, here's what we read. It's Revelation 12, 1 through 9. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon's angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The dragon, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Wow. 
You read that text and you don't immediately start singing, Silent night. It's not exactly what comes to mind. Now look, I'm not trying to ruin every Christmas song that comes to your mind at Christmas, okay? I'm not. You should sing Silent Night. It has great meaning. And it was not written to address Revelation 12. It was not the intent. It's not the context of the song. Though some of the themes in the song actually are touched on later in Revelation 12. So you should enjoy it. You should sing it. But I do think it's helpful. It is helpful for us to know that when in your life, in your story, when all is not calm and all is not bright, neither was the first Christmas. Not all was calm and bright. The Apostle John describes the devil as this enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his head. Seven crowns indicate that the devil has complete world dominion and authority in this world. Ten horns show power. It's showing his power. You'll notice that the dragon is red. The color red represents blood. It represents his murderous ways. Satan's been described as a murderer from the very beginning. He's scary looking, meaning he's evil. And he has heavenly influence. He swept stars out of the sky. It just shows that he is powerful and his movements affect the cosmos. He's no joke. But he can't do the one thing his purpose is to do, which is to devour the Christ child. He couldn't do it. He couldn't pull it off. This woman is pregnant with child and she gives birth to the child, which is the Messiah, but the dragon can't kill the baby. And I cannot imagine all the ways that Satan has tried to devour Jesus. I don't know all the ways that he's done this. I'm sure there were many. We know of of one of those was two years after Jesus was born. We know in Matthew 2, when it introduces us to the evil, paranoid, power-hungry King Herod who would kill anyone or anything that was a threat to his throne. When the wise men came looking for Jesus and asked where the king was, where the king of the Jews was, Herod wanted to know two things. Uh, where was the place he was to be born? And number two, when did they see the star? He wanted to know how old this king was because he wanted to go after him. And when the wise men did not come back to report to Herod, he decided, if I can't find him individually, I will find him collectively. And so Herod sent his army probably from his Herodian fortress, which was just down from Jerusalem towards this hick town called Bethlehem. He probably sent out his army to looking for this child. And we know from history that he set out to kill every boy that was two years of age and under. And we can imagine the horror, the screams of parents as their children are slain before their very eyes. You witness such a senseless tragedy and you realize why the dragon is red murderous, why he has dominion and authority and power in this evil world. Sin has had its way. And you can imagine that moment. One commentator guessed based on the population size of Bethlehem, that would be about 20 boys in Bethlehem. But we also know from the prophecy that it said there would be crying in Ramah, which is 10 miles away. So the killing was probably more widespread than just Bethlehem. But Jesus... With his father, Joseph, and his earthly mother, Mary, they escape to the desert. And God protects them there to escape the tragedy. There's more going on in Luke chapter 2 when Linus read the Charlie Brown Christmas story than we knew was going on 
in Luke chapter 2. We begin to realize maybe it's not all calm and all bright and all silent. And the reason it wasn't all of that is because of this. Satan tried to devour the Christ child. Revelation 12, 5, it says, but Jesus was snatched up to the throne of God. In that one sentence, it takes us from his birth to his ascension. In just one sentence. It covers 33 years of his life. It covers this brief period of time, which now spells Satan's defeat. Revelation 12, 7 through 9, then tells of a war in heaven where Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, but the dragon and his angels lost and they were hurled down to the earth. And you're kind of wondering, you know, when did that happen? Is this before the world began? Is that when it happened? And, and I would say not likely because in the context, the battle in heaven, which Satan and his angels lost and were cast to earth, happened not before the world began, but at the Christ event. It's his death and resurrection and ascension. It's, it's what Jesus came to do and accomplish that sent him hurling down to earth. His time is short. Satan is ticked off. He's hurled down out of the heavens. We know in the Old Testament that Satan could go access the throne of God. We see it in the book of Job when, when Satan goes before the throne of God bringing his accusations against Job and he only worships you because uh, you're blessing him. And God allows Satan to bring pain into his life to demonstrate Job was faithful to God and, and Job was victorious through that situation. But in this case, Satan is now being hurled down. He doesn't have that access like he had before. And so it's likely the Christ event that did it. And what we're seeing here is while he had his power to bring accusations before God, Jesus has now won the victory over him. When Jesus came, starting with Christmas, being born in a manger, when Jesus came, when Jesus began his ministry, we just see Jesus kicking Satan's tail. We see it happening when, when he's casting out demons and making the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, everything Jesus did was destroying the work of the evil one. It, it, was, it was reversing everything that he was doing and he despised it. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out 72 disciples to talk about the kingdom of God and to go. And he gave them instructions to do it. When they returned, the text tells us they were filled with joy. They were rejoicing. Why? Here's what they said. Even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. It sounds like Revelation 12. Where Satan is hurled down, he's defeated through Jesus and what he came to earth to do. And, and the text goes on in Revelation twelve ten through 12. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. That's the Messiah. Who has the, the real authority? Jesus does. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So what's that saying? It's saying Satan 
sought to devour the Christ child. But it's saying this, Satan is now trying to devour all those who belong to Christ. He's trying to devour all who belong to Christ. This is why God says, woe to you on earth who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's a warning that the devil is furious. He knows his time is short. So he's going to try to make an appearance in your story as well. He wants sin to permeate through the world. He is powerful. He wants to devour. He's still in the picture. Now, I, I want you to know the devil is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. Only God is. So I don't want us to suddenly be filled with fear in this story. In fact, the whole point of this story is not to fill you with fear. It's to fill you with encouragement, strength, hope, victory. He's not omnipresent, but he does want to wreck what God is doing. And so when we read Revelation 12, which is about the Christmas story, what is this saying? What is this saying to those of us who belong to Jesus? Here's some things it's saying. Number one is this. You're in a battle with the dragon, so be alert. You're in the battle with the dragon, so be alert. Just because Satan has been hurled down does not mean he isn't doing anything today. Revelation said he's turned his attention on you. 1 Peter 5.8 says he roams around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Peter is giving the same imagery that we see in other places of Scripture. That's why circumstances and situations around us can be so hard. Why temptation is so tempting. Why those who belong to God are under attack. And you may say, man, I don't want to be under attack. I don't know if I want to belong to God. Well, then... Satan has you. <laughs> that means he's already won. And so, yes, you, if you resist him, if you find that he's attacking, that means you belong to God. That's exactly where you want to be. And what you need to know is that God is fighting for you. And so if Satan's fighting against you, you belong to God. And Revelation 12 says God has a plan. He has a promise that you're going to overcome. So you're in a battle. Be alert. But number two, know this. Your accuser who wants to accuse you day and night before the throne of God He's been cast down. His charges can't stick. They don't stick against you. You know why? Because of the blood of the lamb. When Jesus came, he came for the purpose of going to the cross, sacrificing his life, dying on that cross, his blood being poured out to cover, to forgive us of our guilt, to to free us from our sins. And when Jesus did that and ascended and was resurrected and ascended to heaven, he rendered Satan powerless. He defeated him. You know, the crucifixion was Satan's last-ditch effort in that moment to devour Jesus, but it backfired. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 tells us that since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He came to free you. He came to set you free. God has saved his people. He's helping his people. In fact, in Revelation 12, it says that God is taking care of his community and, and for a period of time, he's taken her into the wilderness. So yeah, you're in a battle and Satan's charges against you are not going to stick. And what this means, number three, is that Jesus is victorious. And so are you by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. He's victorious. The authority of Jesus, the kingdom of our God, has come through the Messiah. That's what Revelation says. That Satan's been hurled down. Jesus is victorious. He's the only one victorious. 
And Revelation 12 verse 11 says that Jesus and his angels, they have triumphed over the dragon. So can you. How many of you occasionally wear an article of clothing or some shoes that have the Nike swoosh. Go ahead and raise your hand if that's you around the room. Yep, you've got some Nikes on you. In fact, uh, one of our young men, Alan Tiger, I, I saw him. He was up here, child dedication, sweet little Essie right over there. And he was wearing his Nikes. I saw that, so it made me think of that. Nike. You know, it's interesting that uh, Nike is the Greek word for victory. Nike occurs only once in the New Testament. It's 1 John 5, 4, where it says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Nike, victory. Jesus has victory, Nike. It's, it's, it occurs once in our Bible, in the New Testament. He's overcome, he's triumphed, he has victory. And who else overcomes? Those who believe in him. Amen. We have Nike, we have victory. But the verb form Nike occurs 28 times in the New Testament and it means to overcome. A different word is the verb form, but it means to overcome. 17 of those 28 times is in Revelation, and one of those is right here in Revelation 12, verse 11, where it says that God and his people triumph. They overcome. They have victory over Satan. They overcome. His kingship prevails. His enemies are destroyed. Saints are delivered. That same word for overcome, meaning triumph in Revelation 12, 11, is used by Jesus in John 16, where Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Not all will be calm, not all will be bright, but take heart, I have overcome. There's the, the, the verb form of that word Nike. I've overcome the world. Yes, there's a dragon in the story. Not everything is calm, not everything is bright, but Jesus has triumphed. Jesus is victorious. Jesus has overcome. And that is the point of Revelation 12. Through the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony, so can you. You can overcome. You see, the point of God revealing a red dragon is not so you'll be filled with fear. It is not so that you look over your shoulder for a red dragon to appear at any moment. It's not to give you nightmares on Christmas Eve. It's not why Revelation 12 is written. It's so that you can know you win. So that you know you win. No matter what happens, you win. We praise God for that. That's Revelation 12. That's Christmas. It's written to strengthen your faith, strengthen your resolve, to announce that Satan is defeated. Jesus has already won. Death couldn't stop him. The grave couldn't hold him. Satan is no match for the power of God. His days are numbered. His time is short. He's been defeated. His schemes are just the desperate acts of a defeated foe. So the victory is yours if you want it. The hope of Christmas is yours if you'll cling to it. You simply have to trust in the blood of Jesus to save you, align yourself with him and commit yourself to Jesus and receive the gift that he gives you of salvation. This is the beauty of Christmas. That even if all is not calm and all is not bright, in the power of Jesus Christ, you can overcome. The victory is yours. Someone's going to say at some point, When you're crying on Christmas, it just doesn't feel victorious. When the tears flow because of pain, hurt, loss, 
Christmas doesn't always feel victorious. And my question would be this. Do you think that Jesus cried after he was born? There's this Christmas song. I know you're thinking, he's going to ruin another Christmas song. (laughs) I'm not going to ruin it. I'm not going to ruin it. I mean, that's not my goal. I'm just saying something you've thought before too. Okay? You've thought the same thing already. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. Okay, verse 2. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Yes, he did. (laughs) Yes, he did. Every child development expert will tell you, If a baby is born and they're healthy, they're going to cry. They should cry. They better cry. It's how they communicate, right? Babies cry. Jesus cried. Now, maybe there was a moment. There may have been some moments interspersed where he didn't cry. But the fact is, he cried. I, I guess it's another attempt that we make at Christmas to present everything as calm and bright and beautiful and stress free and peaceful. But I think it's probably more important for you to know today that Jesus came not at a calm and peaceful time. He was born into hardship and chaos and trouble and war, and yet he overcame. And he was victorious. He cried multiple times. He cried whenever he went to the, to the graveside of Lazarus and Mary and Martha were crying. He cried. He cried when Luke 19, over the city of Jerusalem, when he saw the city and he knew what was coming. He cried. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 tells us that during his days on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. He cried. Life is hard. We tend to beautify the stories around us. And because of that, sometimes we just perceive that people are better off than they really are, doing better than they really are. We perceive them as better than they really are. We often make the wrong assumption about others when we compare our problems to theirs, that their lives look like all is calm and all is bright and ours doesn't. Their lives look like it's a happy morning and we suffer in silence. The same thing we do sometimes with Christmas, we do in real life. We don't share our struggles or our pains or our hurts because we don't want to be perceived as people that are messed up because we assume other people are not. We don't share our struggles and our pain and our hurts because we don't want to burden someone else. We, we think that things are supposed to be calm and bright when, when there's a red dragon in this story that's messing things up. We assume they don't, they don't have the pain that we have. But I can honestly tell you that if you've ever experienced hurt, abandonment, betrayal, divorce, abuse, physical, emotional, or sexual, if you've been molested, unfaithful, then you're not alone. I've had multiple people in our church come to me with these stories where God is working in their lives. And they say to me, if you ever know of someone who's going through something like this, I'd be happy to talk to them and visit with them to sympathize and empathize with them and let them know that there's someone who cares and who understands. In fact, about a month and a half ago, my wife and I had a chance to meet, sit down with a couple who shared their story. 
And they're a lovely couple in our church. I appreciate so much their love for the Lord, their love for the church, their heart for service, their love for their children, their commitment of letting the transforming grace of Jesus change them and continue to change them. And they sat down with us and they shared their story, more of their story than I knew before. That includes a great deal of pain from being molested as a child to having a close family member that was molested as well, knowing, knowing what it was like to suffer in silence. They know what it's like to experience unfaithfulness in marriage, family turmoil, dealing with disabilities. And they wanted you, their church family, to know of their willingness to talk with any one of you at any time who is going through any of those things. To know that there are others who have been through it and who empathize and care for you. And and yet God has been at work in their story. A, A couple who is receive mentoring from other people in their life during certain times. They had people that spoke into them and helped them during times when they needed it the most. And it helped heal and transform. And God's not done in their story yet. God's still working in that story. But they wanted you to know that if you're going through something and you want someone to talk to and you feel alone or you feel like you're suffering in silence, that there is someone to talk to, that you could reach out to me and I could connect you to them. I've had other people share with me similar things. This couple that Kim and I were talking to said, they said, tell everyone that they guarantee this, that if God is prompting them to connect to someone else concerning their pain, that they will experience the butterflies in their stomach. They will get that pit in their gut and if, they're, if, if they are thinking about reaching out with an email or a phone call or a text or filling out a card to want someone to reach out to them, they will have that pit in their stomach. And if they have it, it means they're doing the right thing. They're taking the right step because we want the butterflies to go away. We want the pit in our stomach to be avoided. But instead, that's an indication that you should not remain silent in your pain. It's actually a signal that you need to take that step. You need to reach out. You need to make a phone call. You need to send an email. You need to find healing or encouragement and growth. Why? Because they've had that pit in their stomach. And it wasn't until they reached out that it brought further healing. We are to share in each other's pain and each other's grief. We need to stop putting lacquer on it to make things look better. We need to quit putting glitter on it to make it sparkle when in fact we know it isn't. In fact, I think when Satan was hurled down, as Revelation 12 talks about, I think glitter was hurled down too. I think it came right with him, the red dragon, because glitter is of Satan and of the devil. And so we should stop using it, not just metaphorically speaking. Just stop it. Here's the Chris myth. Here's the Chris myth. The Chris myth is this, is that Jesus' coming was calm, bright, and tearless. The truth is, we know from Revelation 12 and from other passages that Christmas actually means this. Jesus' coming into darkness was dangerous and chaotic and tearful. Yet he overcame That means no matter what you're going through, he overcomes. God works powerfully, purposefully, beautifully in the painful circumstances we face. 
His hand is all over the chaotic, dark, disorienting Christmas story. And that means his hand is all over your story. So how do you live when you got a dragon in the background? Two things. Revelation 12, 11 says, by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Trusting in the blood of the lamb to save you and the word of your testimony, you keep putting your faith in him. Number two, by keeping his commands and holding fast to your testimony about Jesus. That's Revelation 12, 17. The people who belong to God obey his commands and they hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. They know that they're saved by the blood of the lamb and they never quit giving a word of their testimony. And when you do that, here's the fact, as, as Mark Moore says in his new book called The Quest, he says, the time is drawing near when Jesus will make everything right. When Jesus came to earth the first time, he came to shepherd his people. When he returns, he will be an equestrian warrior against his enemies. When he came the first time, it was with eyes of compassion. When he returns, it'll be with eyes of fire. His initial crown was made of thorns. When he comes again, he'll be laden with diadems. During the incarnation, he was called Jesus of Nazareth. When he returns, his name tattooed on that thigh is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. On earth, he was beaten and he did not retaliate. From heaven, he will return with a sword. Not on his thigh, it'll be protruding from his mouth. His words are his weapon with which he will judge the nations. All may not be calm. All may not be bright. But it's okay because in Christ we're overcomers. We're victorious. In Christ we win. Jesus, because of him, we can sleep in heavenly peace. Even when all is not calm because of the peace that Jesus gives. And so today, I just want to challenge you right now to step into that truth. That you cling to Jesus this Christmas. Even if all is not calm, as all is not bright, you need to know right now, Jesus is with you. He is for you. He has brought victory to you. So I just want you to stand to your feet right now because we're going to be singing here in a moment. And if you right now need to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life so that you can belong to him, I want to invite you to come talk to me right over here at Decision Point. Or you can take a card in the seat in front of you and you can get that conversation started and put it in a box as you leave. If you're watching online, you can go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision to begin this conversation with us. We want you to be aligned with Jesus and be victorious. This is also a great time for us right now to give as an act of worship to the Lord our, our best and our first of our offerings. And so if you'd like to do that on the screen, it has a phone number where you can text your gift or you can go to our website, northsidechristianchurch.net to give online or you can drop a gift at the boxes around the exits as you leave. But let this be a moment of worship for you your King of kings, your Lord of lords, that you celebrate him, that you worship him. And Lord, right now, Lord, even right now, as we sing, we adore you. We come to you praying that you would help us to align ourselves with the king, the one who is victorious. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season, we would, no matter our emotions or feelings, find our victory in you, our hope in you. Thank you for conquering the grave, defeating the evil one and giving us life. It comes from you and that is what we celebrate and rejoice. We thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to meet me at this time for a decision, I'll meet you right over here. 
Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.